Thank you all for coming. Um, my name is Tony Howard. I'm from the English department here at Warwick. And it's a great honour and it's really exciting for me to be able to introduce to you Michael Frayn. Um, I wasn't going to tell you this because you've come here to hear Michael Frayn, not me. Um, but I have just been told that this is the introduction I should give. Um, when I was um, at a school kid and it was in a housing estate and we used to basically read nothing more than the Daily Mirror or the Daily Sketch, which most of you would never have heard of. Um, I came across a copy of The Guardian, um, and that was an extraordinary experience for many, many reasons. It was opening up worlds. But the reason why I mention it is because there was a column in it by Michael Frayn. Um, and I thought, good grief, that's what being clever is all about. Um, that's amazing. I want more of that world. Um, I'm sure a lot of people could give different um, stories with the same direction. Uh, Michael Frayn, as you know, is an extraordinarily uh, talented and multi-talented writer. Um, apart from his career as a humorist, um, he went on to become one of our leading novelists, um, winning the Whitbread uh, Fiction Award uh, in 2002, I think, with Spies. Um, having already been um, shortlisted for the Booker Prize before that. Um, he is one of our most prolific, brilliant, challenging, and funny playwrights. Um, and there's more to it, some of which you'll hear tonight. The occasion for our having the, um, the pleasure, and me having the dream come true, of meeting Michael Frayn, um, is uh, his new book, Stage Directions. Um, which will be available, and uh, Michael will be signing copies after this event, at a great reduction, very, very good reduction. Um, so do please see this opportunity. Um, plus, it's a very, very good book in which he talks about his experience of the theatre, his career as a writer and translator. I didn't mention translator. He's uh, perhaps our leading Chekhov translator. So that's another self to put on the shelf, which is called Michael Frayn. Um, so as I say, um, I know that you're excited uh, to be here and to have a chance to, to listen to and to meet Michael, and I am too. So with no more than that introduction, Michael Frayn. I did an event like this at the National Theatre on Monday, uh, but maybe the because the National Theatre are cutting back on their expenses or whatever, it was a self-operated occasion. I didn't get an introduction. <laughs> and it's extremely difficult to go on and tell people how wonderful you are <laughs> yourself. Uh, so we cut all that bit. And I got, went straight on to um, explaining what this book was about. It's, um, this book consists mostly of pieces which have appeared before. And they're mostly introductions to different plays and uh, different translations. Um, I've provided an extra introduction to the book, an introduction to the introductions. So I suppose what tonight is, is an introduction to the introduction to the introductions. And I think even the most old-fashioned and uh, well-brought-up young lady uh, couldn't feel uh, she hadn't been properly introduced to my works. Um, in the book, I've tried to explain how I got into writing for the theatre, which was a, a long and uh, tangled story. 
And uh, I won't go through it again because it's in the book, but I began as a child by, I had puppets, and I had to provide some material for them to perform. And they weren't very good at acting. Um, <coughs> they tended to, um, to lean drunkenly against the furniture. Uh, particularly if my attention was engaged elsewhere, <coughs> reading the, the, their lines for them, they would lean against the furniture. And I was not very good with my hands, so they were not very well-made puppets. And when they got, uh, uh, they only had really two gestures. One, uh, in to indicate emotion, they raised an arm like this. And we indicate extreme emotion, they raised a hand. And the trouble was, uh, once they got their hand up that far, they found it very difficult to get it down again. And if you think of operating a puppet on the string, once you've got the hand up there, what do you do with the string to get it down again? And I had to put lead cuffs on the puppets to, uh, to try and get gravity to operate where I couldn't uh, do it myself. And I've also talked about the influences on me as a, as a child, um, doing uh, Christmas sketches with my father and going to the local music halls and all that kind of thing, all of great literary interest. Uh, but what I haven't explained for some reason, uh, so I will tonight to supplement the book, is uh, about my acting career, because I saw myself as a child much more as an actor than as a writer. And um, I went to a, a boys' grammar school, and for years I used to play all the girls' parts. As I recall it, I find this very difficult to believe, and maybe I've just um, uh, fabulated. You say, what is, what is the technical phrase, fabulate or Fabulated. Fabulated, thank you. <coughs> he knows about these things, I don't. Uh, well, I fabulated this, but I recall wearing uh, stockings and suspenders for a lot of the school plays. <laughs> and sometimes I have to go back to the school now to judge this, the, uh, the house drama competition or whatever, and it's now a mixed school. And I'm deeply shocked to find that the women are played by females. It seems to be something profoundly perverse to me <laughs> about having women <coughs> playing women. Um, well, I went on doing that until my voice broke, and then I moved into the, the tenor range of parts. And I saw really quite a career opening up for myself, but it came to a sticky end uh, when I was learning Russian after I left school. And um, we used to do productions of Russian classics um, in order to improve our Russian. We did a, a, a production of the Inspector General, and I was playing the inn servant. Well, it's not a very large part. In fact, it's the smallest part in the play. Uh, but I played my scene, I like to feel, with passion and conviction. Um, I think what any actor will tell you is that when the when an actor's finished his scene, however much passion and commission, co commitment is, is displayed in the scene, what he wants to do then is get off stage. And that's where it all went wrong. Because when I pulled the door, it wouldn't open. <laughs> um, I pulled again and it still wouldn't open. And I looked around for some alternative way to get off the stage. And I couldn't see any apart from climbing over the footlights into the front row of the audience. <laughs> and I didn't have the nerve to do that. So I went on pulling and the whole set began to shake up and forth. <laughs> and the play couldn't continue until I was off stage. Um, and I was in such a panic. All I could hear was the noise of people, stagehands behind the scene, the crowbars, the screwdrivers uh, working on the door. And it took me a long time before I realized they were also whispering something in a sort of off-stage whisper. And what they were saying was, 
push. <laughs> and I pushed, and the door shut open, and I shot off stage, and I've never been back on the stage since. So I had to uh, turn to doing things behind the scenes, rather gl less glorious. The actors get all the glory, and uh, people who uh, do the wigs and the lighting and the makeup and write the plays don't get so much of the glory. And uh, since I didn't have any particular skill at wigs or makeup, I started to write things. Um, and then everything went wrong again. I um, wrote a student review when I was at university, and it was not a success. No one laughed. Um, and I found the experience so painful that I gave up writing for the theatre. Not only gave up writing for the theatre, but gave up the theatre entirely, turned totally against the theatre, absolutely hated and detested it. Um, and when I began uh, to write a humorous column for The Guardian, first The Guardian, then The Observer, which, uh, which Tony has just mentioned, um, I devoted a lot of those columns uh, to mocking the theatre. I said I didn't write plays, I did write plays. I wrote short plays, which were uh, parodies of the fashionable plays of the day. A lot of them, of course, written by people who've subsequently become my uh, professional colleagues. And I sometimes wonder whether they ever look back in the uh, files of the Guardian and the Observer to, to see what I said about their plays before they got to know me. Um, but I was also very worried by the potential embarrassment of the theatre. I wrote pieces about how awful it is. You go to the theatre, you're just waiting for something awful to happen. You're just waiting for the actors to uh, forget their lines or drop their props. And indeed, I wrote uh, um, one play based on um, the play, which I'm sure you're all familiar with, which is uh, Error for Error. Uh, and I suppose that when we got to the locket scene at the end of Error for Error, um, things went so wrong that the cast couldn't continue with the play as written. If you remember Error for Error, I'm sure you do, you've all written exam papers on it, um, at the end of the play, young Ferdinand comes in and meets Duke Oregano and produces a locket which proves that he was the Duke's son carried off at birth by a water spout. Now, I thought, supposing the director, in the sadistic way that directors have, made uh, Ferdinand throw the locket to Duke Oregano, Directors love getting actors to throw props about the stage. It's always terrifying because you wonder what happens uh, if they drop them. Well, I thought when we get to it, we're going to actually give a little performance of the locket scene from uh, um, Error for Error. Um, I'm going to play Ferdinand, and uh, Tony is very sportingly agreed to play Duke Oregano. Um, when Ferdinand comes in, to show the locket to Duke Oregano and the assembled court. I thought he throws it and Duke Oregano attempts to catch it but fumbles the catch. And the locket falls on the floor and rolls away under the scenery. How, what do they do? How do they play the rest of the scene? <laughs> Alas, methinks I have misfingered it. Sir, bend thou down thine aged frame, and do thou smartly pluck it up again. Bend as I might, I cannot see the thing. My lord, do you explore your cloggy beards? 
No sign? Ah, me. I fear it must have rolled amid this mazy grove of cardboard trees. <laughs> Was not one glance as it came winging by enough to grasp the general sense of it? That here before thee stands thy long-lost son? A fig for your problems. What worrieth me is how I speak my major speech, which starts, Come, lock it, let me kiss thee for thy pains, <laughs> and taste the savour of fidelity. Without the bloody locket, come, let's shift this forest. Take you yonder end and heave. Is this meat welcome for a long-lost son? Meat welcome for a long-lost son, forsooth. What kind of long-lost son is this that chucks essential props outside my senile reach and cuts his long-lost father's longest speech? Lose thee again, son, till thou learnst at last the art of throwing props and not the cast. So there we were. I was uh, absolutely never going to write for the theatre, or not even set foot in the theatre if I can possibly avoid it. So what happened then? <laughs> uh, every time I try to explain how I somehow got mixed up in the theatre, I remember a different thing. It's terrible. When you try to remember something complicated that's happened in your life, you always think of some different thing. But I, one of the things I remember is that um, a director I knew asked me to write a short play, a one-act play, for an evening of one-act plays he was doing about the state of marriage and they needed an extra one. Um, and it's always difficult to, um, to resist an open challenge like that. So he asked me to do it, and I said I would do it. So I wrote an extremely simple-minded short play about a young couple who go back for a nostalgic return visit to the hotel in Venice where they spent their honeymoon. Only now they have a small baby. And it's simply about the difference uh, that having a child makes to people's lives. Uh, so I handed this in, and I was absolutely astonished when the uh, director rang a week later to say uh, he couldn't do it uh, because the producer said it was too filthy. Well, the producer, who was going to do it in London, was a man called Alex Cohen, and he was a famous New York producer, and his celebrity was that he specialised in introducing very difficult material are thought to be obscene or, or, or subversive or whatever to uh, boulevard audiences. And he was the producer who first did The Homecoming uh, in New York, which uh, took a lot of courage to do on Broadway at the time. So I was amazed that my little simple play he found too filthy. I said, well, what, is it, what does he think is filthy about it? And the director said, well, Alex says that he could never do a play in which a baby's nappy is changed on stage. <laughs> And I was so irritated by this that I wrote three more short plays and had an evening of my own short plays, and that was my first show in the theatre. And uh, I'd like to say that my uh, enterprise and persistence was rewarded. It, absolutely not at all. Uh, I got disastrous reviews. Uh, in those days, there was um, a, a gallery clack. A group of friends used to come to first nights of plays in the West End. And they would go out and have a drink together in the interval and decide whether they liked the play or not. And if they didn't like it, they would come back and they would catcall the actors and boo and hiss at the end. And that's what they did with, with my play. They came back and catcalled the actors through the second half, uh, catcalled and booed at the end, and then personally catcalled and booed me in the street afterwards, which I thought was carrying criticism a bit far. <laughs> 
But the most useful thing that came out of that evening for me was uh, a first night present. It's a, it's a custom that uh, people in the cast of plays um, give each other presents on the first nights and give the writer and the uh, director presents. And one of the people in the cast was Richard Briers. And as his first night present, he gave me um, a biography of Noel Coward by Sheridan Morley. Well, I didn't know very much about Noel Coward. And all, all I remembered of Noel Coward's career was an arc of unbroken success, one dazzling success after another. And when I read the book, I discovered that his life hadn't been like that at all. He'd had a great many catastrophes, total, total catastrophes. Uh, he wrote one show uh, called The Marquise, a light comedy, not introducing any, uh, any unpopular political ideas or difficult religious concepts or whatever, a simple light comedy, and the audience didn't like it, and they spat at him in the street afterwards, which is one stage worse than catcalling. Um, but what I realized from reading the book was it's in the nature of things that a success in the theater goes on for a long time. They do many performances, new productions, so a lot of people see it. By its very nature, a flop doesn't last very long. Um, so not many people see it, and it gets forgotten. And with any luck, if you have a few successes at the end of your life, people think, <laughs> Lucky devil, he just had nothing but hits in his life. Uh, well, I, uh, I say that people forget it, but I have one absolute catastrophe in my career, and people never forget it. Whenever I do an occasion like this, I can forestall it, because I know you're just about to ask me about it. People always ask me about this catastrophe, which was called Look, Look. Hmm. And it was a play that everyone thought was going to be very funny before we did it, but as soon as we got it in front of an audience, uh, we realized it was a corpse. But we had something like 10 previews, and I knew that every day, every morning, I would rewrite that play, as much of it as I could. Every afternoon, the cast would learn the new version. Every evening, they would do it, and it would be just as bad as the night before. And curiously, what I most recollect um, from that 10 days period of, uh, of previews is not the painfulness of sitting in the theatre watching a comedy where no one's laughing, but sitting at home working on the, the nth rewrite of the play uh, and finding I had something like 15 minutes left in order to get the thing finished and faxed off to the theatre so the cast could learn it and do it that evening, when there was a tap at the door. And uh, I, this is, I had a work flat where I worked in those days, and this was my work flat. There was a little tapping at the door. When I opened it, there was a little old lady standing on the doorstep. And I'd only just moved into the flat. I didn't know any, anyone in the building. And she said, I wonder if you could help me. Uh, we're having slight problems downstairs. Uh, I have a plumber in who is, uh, who is changing my washing machine, taking the old one out and putting a new one in. And we can't find the stopcock. I wonder if you could come and help us. So I thought, right, if I run all the way downstairs to the basement flat where this lady lived, I lived on the top floor, and I can find the stopcock in, say, a minute, I could get back upstairs in another 30 seconds, I could just get the thing finished and faxed off in time for the actors to do it. So I said, right, I ran all the way down the stairs. And when I got to the basement, I discovered uh, that the problem was rather more acute than she had led me to believe. Uh, there was a plumber, and he was indeed um, changing the washing machine. 
and he had disconnected the old washing machine before he had started to look for the stock. <laughs> water coming out of the pipe, and he put his thumb over the end of the pipe to keep the water in. And he'd been doing that, holding that for about 15 minutes by the time I got there, holding the full force of, uh, of London Water Company, or whatever it's called, uh, water back in the pipe. And when I came in, uh, he said, I don't think I can hold it any longer. <laughs> so I said, hold on, hold on, I'll find the stopcock. So I rushed around the flat, never been in these flats before, couldn't find the stopcock. And I said, the only, only thing to do is, is to find the stopcock for the entire building. I couldn't find the stopcock for the entire building. At this point, the plumber said, I can't hold it any longer. And he took his thumb off, and water began like fountain into this, into this flat. I thought well, the only thing I can do, I can't find the stopcock, is to try and build a dam to stop the water running out of the kitchen into the living room. What could I build the dam out of? I rushed around all from floor to floor, from flat to flat, picking up the, uh, the uh, doormats outside the front doors and constructed a dam out of the doormats. And the last doormat I picked up was outside a locked door and under the doormat was a key. And I picked up the key and I put it in the lock and opened the lock and there inside was the stopcock for the entire building. And I turned it off. Well, by that time, the whole flat was underwater. But what uh, really sticks in my mind was that in the midst of this scene of absolute chaos, there was a nun. I don't know where she'd come from. I suppose she had been visiting the elderly lady in the basement to give her spiritual comfort or whatever. And she was just as elderly and as small as the, as the lady wearing the flat. Um, and I was very struck by what she was doing. She stood uh, with the water around her ankles like this. She had picked up a tea cloth and was dabbing it like this. <laughs> and I saw a terrible parallel between what she was doing to save the flat and what I was doing to save my play upstairs. So that was my worst disaster ever. So the, the obvious question after that is, um, what's attracted you to farce? <laughs> Indeed, I'd say people, <laughs> when I used to do these interviews for a start, and I first started writing farce, uh, serious interviewers would always say, why do you write farce? Why don't you write about life as it really is? I couldn't imagine what their lives were like. <laughs> okay, so we've got you lured into the theatre. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's interesting, it's not just in this book, but um, for a lot of your career. You've written a lot about the process of writing and rewriting, and you've written a lot about, I, th I think you say in one of the pieces there, um, the element in theatre that is most ignored, which is the audience. Mm -hmm. um, so I, th I think that's one thing that anyone who uh, gets hold of the book, um, which will be available at the end of the meeting at a greatly reduced price. Um, you're, you're interested in thinking through as you write, you, you look back at how it happened, you rewrite, and all of those things I suppose a lot, a lot of playwrights really don't want to go into. Um, I don't know whether it's egotism, but they tend to give the impression they have an idea, uh, they do the work, they hand it over to someone or they refuse to hand it over and direct it themselves, and there it is. Um, but you, you give a very modest and a very funny, but it's, it's quite important, isn't it, to you, um, that you actually allow us to see the nuts and bolts yeah, I think the question of the audience is an absolutely crucial one. I think this is absolutely at the heart of theatre. Theatre is not actors standing on the stage saying some words to an empty room. It's actors standing on the stage saying words to some people who are looking at them and listening to them and trying to understand, trying to make sense of the, of the story they're telling. 
And uh, this is interesting because it's an extreme form of what we all do all the time in life. We all look at each other and perform to each other, just as I'm performing to you now, and when you get to ask some questions at the end, you're going to be performing in your turn, and you are looking at me, I will be looking at you then, trying, uh, in my case, trying to hear what you're saying, so I'm kind of <laughs> deaf as a post, um, but trying to make sense of each other. And this is absolutely crucial in human relations. Um, we put on a performance and we watch it. Um, one of my plays, Noises Off, is a, a farce, um, and when it's about people performing a play, rather bad actors performing a rather bad uh, English sex farce in the theatre. And when it was first done, and it was a success, um, I'd better throw in a success somewhere, I'd counterbalance my <laughs> story about look, look. Um, people said, oh, well, <laughs> it's all right in England because people have seen English sex farces and they, they know what to expect, but it won't work anywhere else in the world. Well, that play has now been done absolutely everywhere in the world. They do plays. And I asked myself, why? Are people all over the world really interested in English sex files? Are they interest, interested in the difficulties that uh, actors have in rehearsal and remembering their lines and so forth? It seems implausible to me. I think why that play has caught people's fancy, as it has, is that we all have inside us a secret fear that we don't look at consciously, that we will be unable to go on with our performance. Um, I have a fear, as I sit here, that I will suddenly run out of words. Uh, I will sit here um, unable to think what to say to you. Actually, this happened to me on, when I did this solo performance in the National Theatre <laughs> on Monday night. Halfway through talking about it, I realised I hadn't the faintest idea what I was going to say next. And I did sit there for about a minute, gazing blankly at everyone while they gazed blankly at me. But it does happen in life. People do sit down in the corner and, and cry and can't go out and, and face the world. And I think the attraction of that play is we sit there looking at a lot of idiotic actors, having it happen to them, being unable to go on with the performance. And we get rid of our demons and our fears that way. So the audience is absolutely crucial. <clears throat> Was there a point when you began to realise that you had to... Uh, visible different careers as novelist and as playwright or did you see yourself as a writer who happened to be using different medium at different times? Um, well, I can't remember how I thought about it but some ideas uh, I mean what having an idea is is seeing a way of doing it I mean it's no good thinking I'd like to write a play about climate change or whatever that's not an idea itself what is an idea is thinking of some specific story and a way of telling that story um, which may relate to climate change. Um, and there's a difference between uh, theatre and plays. Uh, they exploit very different aspects of our experience. And I'm always surprised that more people don't write both uh, novels and plays mm -hmm. because the, uh, the two experiences uh, reflect each other and feed off each other and, and, uh, and inform each other. Um, in a novel... <laughs> it's absolutely natural for the writer to know what goes on inside the heads of the characters. It doesn't have to, but if you think of most of the novels you've read, it's full of things like, uh, he decided to do so-and-so, or she felt bitter resentment at his attitude, uh, or uh, he was deeply unhappy. All this kind of thing um, suggests that the author 
knows completely what's going on, the, what the feelings and thoughts and intentions of the characters are. Well, in a play, you can't do that. All we know in a play is what the actors say and what they show us by their, what they're doing and what their body language is. Um, and of course, in some ways, that's absolutely our experience of life. Um, we don't have access to each other's heads. I don't know what you're thinking, you don't know what I'm thinking, and we have to work it out uh, from what we hear and what we see the other person doing. So in that way, plays are more like our experience of life. But then, of course, there is one person in life to whose head we do have better access, privileged access, or at least think we do, and that's our own self. And in that way, the novel is more like our experience of life because we do believe that we have access to our own intentions. Uh, this is rather uh, a dubious thesis, and I wrote a play called Copenhagen, which is about the difficulty of knowing what people's intentions are, even the difficulty of knowing what one's own intentions are. I was, I was going to mention Copenhagen, then, if you hadn't done that. Um, uh, many of you will know that... Um, Michael Frayn has written a number of plays which are looking at fairly recent history, um, at extraordinary moments. Um, Copenhagen is one which looks at um, the development of the atomic bomb. Um, that was followed uh, at the National Theatre by Democracy, um, which looks at a particular moment um, in European politics. It's when Billy Brandt began to create a connection with the East and begin to deal with the problems that, 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 that the first and Second uh, World Wars had left us with. And now there's a third play in that series, which I hope Michael will tell us a little bit about in a moment, because it's about to open at the National Theatre, which looks at the career of Max Reinhardt, a great um, uh, German-Jewish um, theatre director um, who had to leave um, Hitler's Germany before the war. Um, and these three plays, um, they're fascinating for lots of reasons, because of that period they look at, the fact that they look at particular lives and to some extent reconstruct them and to some extent analyse them and presumably also uh, create fictions around them, to some extent it must be. Um, but that, that point that you were talking about there, uh, about form and trying to know things and how far you can, um, that's very, very important in the case of uh, Copenhagen, where three characters um, who are, in a sense, ghosts, reconvene and try to work out what happened at a crucial point in their past. And there's Niels Bohr, um, the great physicist um, Heisiger, um, and Bohr's wife. And time and time again, the same issues, the same questions, the same events are looked at from different points of view, exploring uncertainty, the uncertainty principle. Um, what I particularly find fascinating is that what these plays do is the opposite of what the farces do. A farce shows you people caught in the moment and terrified they're not going to get out and it's not going to go the way they wanted. They'll never find that door. They'll always be trapped there. Um, whereas these plays, all of them, oh, I don't know about the new one, um, but Democracy in Copenhagen, um, they're partly memory plays where we're being invited to look back and the characters themselves look back on what their lives were to try to understand it. Um, so I'm just very interested in what, how you've developed that form, which seems, in, in a sense, to be exploring the, the strengths of theatre and novels, and indeed poetry too, to some extent. Um, I think I first uh, came upon the idea of having characters uh, talk about what's happened and demonstrate it uh, when I translated uh, a modern Russian play called Abmien Exchange, 
uh, by a modern Russian writer called Trifonov. And he's not really a, a playwright, now dead. He wasn't really a playwright, he was a, a novelist. But uh, the great uh, eccentric uh, Russian uh, stage director, Lyubimov, persuaded him to make uh, a stage adaptation of a couple of his stories, one called The House on the Embankment and the other called Exchange. And uh, when I saw Exchange in, uh, in Moscow, I uh, thought it was absolutely wonderful and asked um, uh, uh, Trifonov's permission to uh, translate it, which I did. And in that, he used the form of uh, a character telling the story of events that he's been involved in and then acting the events out in front of you. And I think that was the first time I actually had it in my hands. And I then wrote another play called Benefactors, uh, a play of my own, uh, in which there were four characters, uh, each of whom took it in turn to be the narrator, uh, talking about events that had happened over a couple of decades, and uh, then slipping from the narration into the, into the uh, scene in the past. Curiously, um, what there's not much about in this book is, uh, is uh, theatrical theories. I haven't really got any theatrical theories. Um, but theatrical theories are very thick on the ground in Germany. Now, I love Germany, and I, I like everything about Germany, apart from German uh, theatrical production, which is a bit <laughs> awkward, because that's, of course, one of my main connections with Germany. And uh, in Germany, the theatre is dominated by the director. I call it director's uh, theatre, the Regie Theater. Um, and there is a, a director at the moment called Andreas Kautz, uh, Kreuzenberg at the Schaubühne in Berlin, who has developed a theory which apparently is now extremely influential in Germany, uh, that there is no such thing as direct action in the theatre. You cannot represent the present in the, in the theatre. Now, you and I have spent our lives going to the theatre and sitting in audiences thinking we were watching a representation of current events and thinking, oh, what's going to happen next? What's going to happen? Uh, is, is he going to murder or isn't he going to murder her? Uh, will he forgive her or won't he forgive her or whatever? Uh, and we believe that the theatre is, is a way of bringing the elusive present of our own experience and making it real to us. Uh, well, uh, Andreas uh, Preussenberg says absolutely not. No such thing in the theatre. The th all the theatre can do is tell stories. It can recount. The, the actors have to recount what has happened to them and they remember happiness, remember unhappiness or whatever, and long for it, uh, but never actually do anything direct in front of us. Well, uh, that seems to be a weird enough theory, but even weirder are the practical applications of this. Apparently there's a production in Stuttgart at the moment, can't remember the play, uh, very influenced by, uh, by uh, Kreuzenberg's theory, in which the sky cloth falls very slowly, millimetre by millimetre, onto the heads of the cast throughout the play. And there's another production by Kreuzenberg himself at the Schaubühner in Berlin called The Molière Project. So presumably it's either a play by Molière or about Molière. And what happens in The Molière Project is that it snows <laughs> for five hours. <laughs> So this has now become an active uh, question in the, in the German theatre. Well, don't get me on to German theatre production. I'll tell you about the first, uh, the first production of Copenhagen in Germany. But uh, what's very interesting is that when you published and have then revised and republished plays like Copenhagen, um, you've given us wonderful 
um, postscripts where you share your reading and you give us a great deal of the research that's gone into the, writing the play. Um, why do you need to do that, do you feel? Well, the main point is because these plays are based on the historical record. And uh, I simply want to make clear what I've taken from the record um, and what I've made up. Because I think people like to know if, if they're presented with, uh, with real characters who really did live. Uh, I think they, with a fiction about them, I think they want to know um, what the author made up and what they didn't. And the best solution to that ever, I think, was found by Christopher Hampton in a play called Tales from Hollywood, a really wonderful play. If you ever see his production of Tales from Hollywood on, uh, run to see it. Um, and it's about the uh, German writers um, who took refuge in America during the war. And um, some of them were successful, uh, some of them had a pretty thin time of it, and they hung together as a kind of uh, community, German-speaking community in Los Angeles. Well, all this is based on the record. Um, but to make clear that this is also a fiction, uh, Christopher Hampton has chosen as his uh, principal protagonist uh, an Austrian playwright called Erdon von Horvath. Well, Erdon von Horvath had to um, emigrate from his native Austria uh, when, uh, at the time of the Anschluss, when the Germans uh, took over, uh, Germany took over Austria, and uh, he had to go to Paris. And while he was in Paris, uh, he was standing on the Champs Elysees one night, sheltering from the rain under a tree, when the tree was struck by lightning, a branch fell on him and killed him. This was in 1938 or 1939. Christopher Hampton has made the starting point of his play von Horvath, standing under a tree, Champs-Élysées, and the lightning strikes the next tree along. So somebody else is killed. Von Horvath <laughs> survives. And, of course, uh, when the Germans uh, march into France, he has to go into exile with all the other German writers in America. So you know that even though he's talking about historical characters, none of the conversations that follow, none of the actions that follow, the interactions between uh, Horvath and Brecht and Thomas Mann and so forth, come from the historical record. They are invented, and he had made it clear with the utmost elegance, which is which. And because you haven't gone for that, you feel responsibility? Yeah, I think, <laughs> I think one should just, just make clear. I think one's, one's curious about it. Could, could you give us any hints at all about what's going to happen in the Reinhardt play? Um, it's curious, it's serendipity. No one in this country has ever heard of Max Reinhardt apart from Tony Howard, <laughs> who rather embarrassingly uh, knows far more about <laughs> Max Reinhardt than I do. Yes, I was hoping to have a chance to change the script a little bit before it opens. <laughs> <laughs> but he really does uh, you know a great deal. He's been telling me about it over supper before the, uh, before the meeting. Um, Max Reinhardt was a most extraordinary man. He... Um, very out of fashion, not only in this country, it's forgotten, uh, but in Germany and Austria. He's in fact Austrian, not German. Um, but even in Austria and Germany, uh, the tide of fashion long ago turned against him. Um, but part of his greatness was that he uh, refounded the Deutsche Theater in Berlin as a private theater, a huge theater that he ran uh, more or less the way the National Theatre runs in London now. That's to say, doing a, a, a great um, a repertoire of the standard classics and also doing all the most interesting new plays. This was the beginning of the 20th century. He did Ibsen, uh, Chekhov, Strindberg, Galsworthy, Hauptmann, uh, 
all the people who were most interesting then, who were writing then, he did at the Deutsche Theater, and he did it without any subsidy or, or subvention. He somehow kept it going. So that was a massive task. Then he went back to his native uh, Austria, leaving the Deutsche Theater going in Berlin, uh, took over a beautiful theater called the Theater in the Josefstadt, and did the same thing for Vienna, set up a similar sort of enterprise there. He then went to Salzburg after the First World War and helped to found the Salzburg Festival and directed all the shows there. And he also uh, did a huge program of touring massive productions, often with 500 or 1,000 extras. Uh, did them in Vienna, did them in London, did them in New York, all over America. How on earth he survived that uh, regime, I cannot think. Uh, and he lived in the grandest possible style. He lived in a Baroque palace just outside Salzburg, which is what first got me interested in, in Reinhardt. Uh, and he poured efforts and money into making, not just restoring this palace to its 18th century grandeur, but actually making it better than it had ever been. And he did all this. He actually combined all this uh, into, into one lifetime. And then in uh, 1938, when the uh, Nazi regime uh, marched into uh, Austria and declared that Austria was part of the German Reich, he had to go because he had this basic, simple problem. He was Jewish. And Leopold's crown was Ariziert. It was Aryanized, which is to say it was stolen and was then occupied by the... Uh, uh, by the uh, Gauleiter of, uh, of Salzburg. So he lost everything. And he lost the Deutsche Theater, he lost the Theater in the Josefstadt, and uh, spent miserable years in exile in America, trying to set up shows, trying to get films set up, and uh, having a very, very thin time. But the play that um, he was most associated with in Salzburg was a play called Jedermann, Everyman. And every man was based on an old English morality play. Uh, and it had been adapted by uh, Hugo von Hofmannsthal. Um, and it's the story of, uh, of God getting angry at the shortcomings of mankind and deciding to take it out on some sample human being. And he summons Jedermann, every man, for judgment. And Jedermann is a is not at all a sort of everyman, not, a, not an average uh, Austrian citizen. He is an extremely wealthy person who's enjoying every possible uh, pleasure in life. And he's plucked out of this, and he suddenly, out of nowhere, he has to give up everything because God has summoned him. And I was just struck by the parallels between the life of every man and the life of Reinhardt. Because one of what Reinhardt's great ambition in life uh, as he said over and over again, was to break down the frontiers between life and the theatre, to make the theatre run into life and, the, and life run into the theatre. So that's what the play's about. Fantastic. Open six months. Uh, do come and see it. National Theatre at the Littleton. Okay, um, could we have some questions? Um, as, as you heard, Michael would like me to repeat the questions because he's deaf. I, on the hand, other hand, am blind um, <laughs> and um, apologise in advance if I don't actually see you, but if you'd like to rift, lift your hand up and look really active, there's a gentleman over there. I saw a documentary two or three years ago on television about the thinking of the SS Persia in the Mediterranean. 
it was sunk by some U-boats that decided that, you know, that they, it would be unrestricted and it was against German policy at the time. After the war, what, some of these skippers were tried in German courts for crimes against humanity and they were acquitted. On, when I saw it, I thought of you, because but perhaps I've given a very simplistic notion to Copenhagen. The actual debate of that issue, whether it was right, we were starving them to death in Germany, things like that. Is that sort of thing really at the screens? Is it just too, you know, kind of, the issues are real, there's no great equivocation about who did what, who said what. Is it right to do something appalling like that in the pursuit of, is that your kind of topic or not? Well, it could be, you never know what, uh, did, did everyone hear that at the back? It's, uh, even I heard it, thank you, you speak very clearly. That's usually the case, isn't it? <laughs> At the National Head on Monday, I couldn't hear any questions. I keep asking people to stand up and shout, but uh, I, we seem to be doing better tonight. Um, I don't know, some stories just catch your imagination and some don't. Um, and I, I didn't know about this event, and if I read it, perhaps it would catch my imagination. What ca caught my imagination about the story of Heisenberg in uh, Copenhagen um, was that what everyone has... Um, the story's been much, much examined by historians and scientists. Um, um, what is at issue is what Heisenberg's intentions were in going to Copenhagen. What did he, why did he want to see Bohr in these very embarrassing circumstances when uh, uh, the Germans had invaded uh, Denmark and occupied it? So it was deeply embarrassing for Bohr to receive him. Why did he want to do it? Um, and I just seemed to me that there was a kind of the theoretical parallel between the uncertainty that Heisenberg introduced into physics uh, when he demonstrated that you can't know everything about the behavior of a particle or indeed by extension any physical object and the, uh, the uncertainty about a human intention, why people do what they do for completely different reasons. There's absolutely no parallel between uh, the reasons there's uncertainty about particles and uncertainty about intentions. Uh, and that's, that's what got me on doing that story. There's always something about the story that sort of catches your imagination somewhere. But I will look into, into the piece of history of motion. One of the historians was so moved about what had happened to the people on the boat, she broke down in tears on the television. It was very powerful. Yes. yes. Another question? Yes? I wonder if I could ask you about your rather super Chekhov translation. I guess I'd like to know what drew you to Chekhov, because it doesn't seem to be that similar to the rest of the body of your work. And why you thought that, what you thought you could bring to Chekhov that wasn't already there in the morass of existing translations. Right, so so what, what drew Michael to um, Chekhov? And uh, 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 were you responding in some way to the kind of uh, translations that already existed? Uh, well, I've, I've told the story in the book, but I'll, I'll tell it again, and you might have to, to spend money on the book. Um, the dramaturg at the National Theatre asked me to translate some Goldoni. And I said, I don't think I can, I, my only primitive uh, tourist Italian, I certainly, certainly don't have any uh, uh, Venetian dialect or whatever. Uh, I don't think I could do it. He said, good heavens, you don't need to know Italian to translate Goldoni. You just get a handful of standard translations and rewrite them. So I said, okay, well, I wanted to work for the National Theatre I never had. So he sent me a, a standard batch of Goldoni translations, and I spent a long time reading them all. And 
I couldn't see how to do it. I, I couldn't. Each, I thought it was, I said in the book, it was like looking at Goldoni through a series of different windows, some of them uh, uh, half covered in dirt, some of them speckled, some of them distorting <coughs> glass, and I could not see what the original plays were like. So I said, I'm terribly sorry, I, I can't do this, but why don't you ask me uh, to translate some plays out of a language I do happen to know, Russian. And the dramaturg, uh, John Russell Brown, was very taken with this idea. It never occurred to him before. And I, I, I truly had never thought of asking anyone who actually knew a language to translate plays out of language. So I said, all right, why not? Yeah, OK. So uh, I did, first of all, I did one Tolstoy play. And then I did um, a Chekhov, the Cherry Orchard. And the Tolstoy play didn't work out terribly well. His, uh, Great as he is as a novelist, Tolstoy is not really a dramatist. But the, I, I was really um, uh, tremendously excited by translating the Chekhov. I really, it, if you're translating something really good, I'll tell you what it's like. It's like being uh, a small child sitting in your parents' lap in a car when and being allowed to sort of steer the steering wheel when your mother or father is actually operating the pedals and, and the uh, and the gear. Lever. Because the great difficulty of writing a new play is you've got to invent the story and invent the characters, and you don't know if it's going to work, you know, it's going to work, which is, which is very undermining kind of uh, uh, uncertainty. Uh, but if you're translating the cherry orchard or whatever, you've got all the characters there, you've got the plot there, uh, the setting there, and you know it works, otherwise, you wouldn't be translating it. Uh, so you have this wonderful feeling of riding down the highway in control of this wonderful fast car. Um, but I also found it thrilling to translate Chekhov because he is a, a very great writer indeed, I think. And I found a very surprising thing, made a very surprising discovery, um, that those last four plays are all plot. You, if you see them, you don't think they're so well done. You don't think of them as being plot, plot, plot. You think that people just come on, it happens to be like this, it happens to be like that. But in fact, in those four last plays, Almost every line is driving forward the business of the play. And uh, that's, um, I wouldn't like to make any claims for, for myself, but that is a lesson I've tried to learn from Chekhov, that um, we should have the start on line one and keep going with the plot, 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 until you get to the end. I, I don't remember who it is, but there's a British playwright who said that the best training you can have as a playwright is to copy out a Shakespeare play. Oh, right. yes, um, just, the, yeah. just the experience of writing those words yeah. actually rather like driving the fast car yeah. actually give you a training that yeah. you could never get any other way well it's even better if you translate because to translate a play you can't just uh, sort of do it word for word you really have to marinate yourself in the original at least I think you do um, and, f and understand how the play works but if you don't know how the play works you may miss out the essential piece of uh, the essential principle that's, uh, that's, that's driving it so you really need to know something about the play. A uh, question from over here. Mm -hmm. The blind person. The gentleman right here. Yes. Did I find my experience as a journalist useful when it came to writing uh, novels and plays? Uh, yes, I, I think it did. Uh, I, in fact, I've just been um, 
thinking about this because uh, The Guardian are starting a series of interviews with writers, and one of the things they've asked the writers to do is to choose, absolutely impossible requests, absolutely characteristic of newspapers to do this, uh, ask the writers to choose the most significant line or paragraph out of their works and explain why it's so, of course. You hope that all, all the paragraphs <laughs> and lines in your works are significant, you don't want to choose one uh, above another. Uh, but I thought I would at any rate choose um, one of the shortest lines, and I chose the, uh, the first line from Copenhagen, which is my greatest saying, but why? Uh, because the whole plot of the play is in that one line. And that is something I certainly learned as a reporter, as a reporter on The Guardian, before I wrote the column. Uh, as a reporter, you have to get the story into the first paragraph, and you have to be as brief as possible. And I've certainly, uh, haven't always succeeded in getting the story into the first paragraph of a novel or a play, but make it clear from the beginning what it's about, and write it as briefly as possible. Yeah. And also, I think uh, reporting, and I did a lot of reporting even long after I finished as a reporter. I went back and started doing serious reporting again. I think is um, really something that all writers of fiction ought to be required to do by law, occasionally, to go and actually do some reporting. Because you make some appalling discoveries. You discover that the world is not in words and can never be got into words. The words and the world don't fit together. You discover the world is an appallingly complicated place where you can't understand what makes things happen. When you, when you make things up, when you imagine things, it all kinds of falls into place in your head or begins to make sense as the story tells itself. And you can see why people do things and you see which bits of the scene to describe. But when you go out and look at even this room, I mean, just trying to write a report about what it's like sitting in this room, fiendishly difficult, fiendishly difficult. So I think reporting is, is a good thing for any writer to do. In a strange way, uh, that, that goes back to the Hamlet story, uh, the idea of rewriting a Shakespeare play, because the first word, the first line of Hamlet is who's there, which tells you the entire story. Um, which is not to say that you don't have... It's yes. pointless sitting through the next four and a half hours. Yes. Um, but that, that catching people's attention without them realising yes. it, planting a seed, is fantastic. Yes. Yes. Probably have time for one more question. The gentleman uh, yeah. right here, I can see it. Yeah. In your post-postscript to your essay on Copenhagen, you refer to Neil, Neil Ford's uh, draft letter, which was never actually sent. It was only just um, yes, I should have structured it slightly differently. This is um, because of the play. One of the things that people ask if the theatre has any effect on the world, Copenhagen certainly had an effect on the world because people began to argue about it in America and a lot of new material came to hand, including a letter um, written or drafted by Niels Bohr to Heisenberg, and I think it was 1965, well, perhaps it was a bit earlier, but it was uh, a considerable period of time after the war, uh, when he read Heisenberg's account of that meeting. He disagreed so strongly that he wrote his own account. Um, but absolutely characteristically for Bohr, um, he never sent it. He went on redrafting it and redrafting it for the rest of his life and never sent it. And there were all these drafts uh, in his papers, which were put 
um, into the Niels Bohr archive in Copenhagen, which was supposed to be um, supposed to be um, kept embargoed until, 19, until 2010, I think, or 2012, uh, 50 years after Bohr's death. And they were released because um, someone had mentioned them in one of the symposium on the play in New York, and everyone began to ask what was in the letter. And I think I would have seen from uh, those letters that Niels Bohr was angrier about the meeting than he seems to be in, in my play. He seems to be rather calm about it in my play. Um, and he obviously, at any rate with hindsight, uh, felt angry about it. Um, the most striking thing about those uh, drafts of the letters is something that people didn't comment on the, at the time, it seems to me. And that is that he, although he disagrees with Heisenberg about many things about the meeting, he agrees on one extraordinary central point. He agrees that Heisenberg indicated to him that there was a research program in Germany to produce nuclear weapons, and that he, Heisenberg, was running it, and that he now thought, in theory, it was possible to make atomic weapons. Well, this seems to me absolutely extraordinary uh, if you think, uh, if you, uh, Niels Bohr was uh, an enemy alien as far as Heisenberg was concerned. He was a, a Dane. The Danes had just been occupied, defeated by Germany and occupied. Uh, he was also half Jewish. Um, he was also uh, famously anti-Nazi and given a lot of support to Jewish physicists who had been driven out of, of Germany. And he was still in touch with physicists in um, Britain and America. He was still writing for the Physical Review in, in America, and everyone knew that. So Heisenberg, um, whatever the finer points of his motivation were, must have known that at the very least Niels Bohr would pass on the news that Germany was working on nuclear weapons, in, as indeed uh, Niels Bohr did. As soon as he got the opportunity, he passed on the, uh, the, the news to, to Chadwick, the, the British physicist. Um, what people have noticed less, and this really would have changed the way I'd written the play, is that, um, and I don't know which edition of the uh, post, 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 postscript you read, but in the later editions, it also takes in the fact that the Heisenberg family have now released a letter. Um, and Heisenberg's letter is particularly interesting because he wrote it not uh, 15, 20 years after the event, when one of the difficulties was, of course, remembering what had happened. But he wrote it during the week he was in, in 1941, the, during the week he was in Copenhagen. And he wrote it to his wife in Leipzig. And he, was, he went back to Berlin, took the letter with him, and posted it to his wife in Leipzig, and it's remained in the family archive ever since. No one ever thought it was of any interest. Um, well, the disappointing thing about it is that he doesn't mention the conversation with Bohr. But everything else about it is absolutely fascinating and does change um, what we know about the events that I described in the play. Uh, it's been much disputed as to whether um, Heisenberg went to Niels Bohr's house. A lot of people said, no, no, he didn't. Niels Bohr was so angry about the meeting, he would only receive him at the, uh, at the Institute, the Niels Bohr Institute in the center of Copenhagen. Well, uh, the letter makes it clear um, that the very first thing that 
uh, Heisenberg did when he got off the train from Berlin was to go to the Boer's house, and he spent the evening there. Uh, that was on the Monday. Um, he didn't just go once. He went again on the Wednesday. So there were two trips to the house, which no one has mentioned before. And um, from, although he doesn't mention the conversation from the internal evidence, it's pretty clear that the conversation must have occurred at some point in this second meeting. He presumably doesn't mention it in the letter because he knew he was being under surveillance by the Gestapo and he thought they would, uh, might open the letter. Um, but the great surprise is is this. The one thing everyone agrees about that meeting, the one thing we thought we did know, they disagreed about everything, uh, the one thing we did know is that they finished their friendship. That uh, whatever happened, whatever got said, uh, the two men who'd been great friends, been old friends, old colleagues, uh, couldn't speak together again and had great difficulty in putting their relationship together again at the end of the war. Well, what the letter makes clear is that Heisenberg went back to the Boer's house for a third visit and spent the evening there on the Friday. And he says, in many ways, it was a particularly nice evening. Uh, Niels Bohr read aloud to me, and I played him the Mozart A major piano sonata. Um, in other words, they didn't immediately fall out. Um, their friendship continued at any rate from the Wednesday to the Friday. What's the explanation of this? I don't know, but I imagine it's that a lot of what happens to us we don't quite understand at the time. It's when we look back on it that we begin to form attitudes to it. And whatever transpired in this conversation, which was broken off before it got very far, um, obviously didn't strike either man as all that significant, all that fatal at the time. Perhaps as the war went on and the circumstances of the German occupation of Copenhagen became worse, and particularly at the end of the war, when the full extent of Nazi crimes became apparent, maybe uh, Bohr began to feel angrier that he'd ever received a visitor from Nazi Germany. Maybe Heisenberg began to feel more defensive about his, his uh, somewhat equivocal relations with the Nazi regime. I don't know, that seems the likeliest explanation. But if I'd known that, obviously, I would have had to have uh, restructured the, the play. I would love to have more questions from the floor, but time is limited. Um, simply, I should say that anyone who does not know Copenhagen, you've already been given a hint just by hearing the conversations here. Um, it's a remarkable play that you really would benefit from having a look at, because what Michael Frayn's plays do is they give you the strange sense that you're participating in the major issues of our time by encountering, by sharing, by observing the attempt of the characters to make sense of these crucial moments, these crucial issues. Um, it's a very rare, rare gift, and that's what makes those plays so um, controversial, so engrossing, and so moving. So do please track down um, uh, Copenhagen if you haven't done so already. Um, there are lots and lots of microframes, and obviously, if we were to do them all justice, we would be here till after midnight. Um, I do hope some of the Michael Frames will come back in future and perhaps talk about the novels and other, other issues. Um, I do know that if he does, um, he would probably have a book to uh, sign after the conversation. Um, so there will be a signing after this. Um, could I just put in an advert before we finally close? Um, as you know, there is um, uh, an extraordinarily wonderful list of writers at Warwick 
um, events lined up for the rest of this term. Um, I might especially draw your attention to um, A.L. Kennedy's talk, which is on Wednesday the 18th of June here. Um, A.L. Kennedy, um, the winner of the most recent Whitbread Prize, um, a student of Warwick some time ago, and one of our, our staff here working on the creative writing program, and uh, a brilliant entertainer. Um, who is also one of the few writers who is known uh, both as a novelist and as a stand-up comedian. One of the few, but not the only one, it turns out. Um, can I thank you very, very much for, for being here, and can I just ask you to thank Michael Frank. at Warwick Arts Centre, part of the University of Warwick. For more information about the Writers at Warwick programme, including future readings and events, please visit www.warwickartscentre.co.uk. The Writers at Warwick podcast was produced by Tom Abbott. The music was written and performed by Dylan Owen. <laughs>